0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. But what we have seen in American society is that the illusion of a Christian majority is now gone. I would argue that that was precisely that, an illusion that never matched up with reality as defined by the Scriptures. But the illusion of that cultural majority is gone, and churches now are going to have to articulate things that they previously could assume. In August of 2015, the ERLC hosted its second national conference titled The Gospel in Politics. In this opening message, Russell Moore addresses how the gospel reshapes evangelical political involvement. Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. We hope you enjoy this timely message. Would you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, Acts 16, I'd like for us to start reading with verse 25 and read on down through verse 40. Acts sixteen twenty-five through 40. And if you would, would you please stand out of reverence for the reading of the Word of our God. The Holy Spirit says through Luke, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. May God bless His Word. You may be seated. You know, we're here in Music City today, and every time that I find myself walking past or into uh, the White House, I think about a woman who made her fame here in the 1960s and 1970s by the name of Loretta Lynn, who was a coal miner's daughter, who became a a singer and a songwriter and rocketed to the top of the country music charts. But she didn't uh, know much about the ways of the world. She'd been isolated all of her life in a little coal mining community in Kentucky and suddenly finding herself with celebrity, she was invited to the White House in the early 1970s to meet with President Richard Nixon. And as she's going through the receiving line, shaking hands with President Nixon, everyone standing around was horrified when they heard Loretta Lynn say, hello, Richard, how are you doing? And after a few moments of hubbub, some people consulted with Loretta Lynn and said, you cannot refer to the President of the United States by his first name. You cannot refer to the President of the United States as Richard. To which Loretta Lynn responded, well, they called Jesus, Jesus, didn't they? And the first time that I heard that, I thought, That really hits the pulse of many of the tensions that we find going on, not only between the church and the state, but also between our lives as those who are Christians engaging with people in the public sphere in all sorts of uh, platforms and all sorts of places. Even the sorts of conversations that can go on uh, around a little league baseball team, or the conversations that can take place on social media, or the conversations that happen as a community is trying to decide what to do about a, a crime outbreak in the community. How do we as Christians... Engage in issues that sometimes are political without becoming co-opted by politics and losing the gospel and the mission at the same time. And it seems to me that that is exactly the paradox that we see here in this text, in this incident in the life of the apostle Paul that can give us a clue as to how to proceed. Paul is in jail. Most people who have been in the church for very long are very familiar with this incident of Paul and Silas chained in the jail there in Philippi. They're there, though, because they have created an uprising by preaching the gospel in Philippi and specifically by liberating a demon-possessed slave girl freeing her from the the power that she had been under. And that created a conflict with the economic power structures in Philippi. This is something that happens repeatedly in the book of Acts. It's Jesus versus money. In this case, the slave girl was being used as a fortune teller. She was a, a victim of human trafficking in the ancient world. And when Paul liberated her from this power, the people who were using her lost in their minds an economic asset, and that led to riots, that led to hostility. We saw that also in Ephesus when the apostles are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and it threatened the industry of the silversmiths who were making figurines of the goddess Artemis there in the city. Created a hubbub, created a riot, and in this case, it created the penalty of the law. Paul and Silas, as troublemakers and as insurrectionists, are imprisoned in a jail cell. Now. You and I are not in threat of persecution along these lines in North America. You and I are not in threat of persecution along these lines in North America, certainly compared to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering around the world. But what we have seen in American society is that the illusion of a Christian majority is now gone. I would argue that that was precisely that, an illusion that never matched up with reality as defined by the Scriptures. But the illusion of that cultural majority is gone, and churches now are going to have to articulate things that they previously could assume. There was a time when churches could almost count on the culture to do pre-evangelism, When it comes to issues, for instance, of marriage and family, most of the people in our communities, we could assume, aspired to the same vision of marriage and family that we do. And so we could build bridges to them with those felt needs of having a healthy marriage and having a a stable nuclear family, and then show them how they could receive that through following Christ. Those days are over. The people around us increasingly not only do not share our aspirations or our ideals, in many cases they do not even understand them. And so how are we as the people of Christ going to maintain an engagement with that sort of world with the gospel? Well, the first thing I would suggest to you is we need to see in this text that the gospel propels us to give up our rights. An earthquake hits the prison, and Paul and Silas here, no doubt having people praying for them all around Philippi and perhaps in other places, are now delivered. They're freed. This is the same sort of situation we've seen earlier in Acts with the apostle Peter, where an answer to prayer is that he's supernaturally freed from prison and yet Paul and Silas refuse to leave. Why not? Because of the gospel and the advance of the mission. When the jailer sees the wreckage all around him, when he fears that he's going to lose his prisoners, and that means that he's going to have to give an account to his supervisors, to imperial Rome, Paul shows compassion on this agent of the state, an agent of a pagan predatory state in many ways, and says, we're not going to leave, we're going to stay here, because he's motivated with a gospel priority. And notice that the evangelism here doesn't start with the Apostle Paul's answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? It starts with the community of Paul and Silas, even in the jail, who are praying and singing hymns in a way that is then overheard by the people around them. In this text, the community, the worshiping community, and the mission, the community as it advances, are together. They sing, they pray, they live even in difficult circumstances, and they are ready to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. In too many cases in the United States of America, Christian political engagement has often been a political agenda in search of a gospel useful enough to accommodate it. That is not what you and I have been called toward. We have been called to be so defined by the gospel and so defined by the mission that we see everything through that grid. That's what they're doing. The issue is not their freedom. The issue is not lashing back at Rome. The issue is not getting vengeance on those who mistreat them. The issue is carrying out what Jesus has called them to do. And that means, if that's the case, we must see a community that is being formed as a sign. A sign that is shaping and forming consciences. Paul and Silas are not strategically singing in order to be overheard. They are not strategically praying in order to evangelize. Paul and Silas are forming a community that is that is joined to the larger community of the body of Christ, and organically and naturally, they are living out their lives as gospel people do. If we are going to go forward into the 21st century, we must understand that that sort of community is of paramount importance in our mission. That's what shapes and forms consciences. And that's why when we look at in the New Testament, for instance, in James chapter two, with all of the problems going on in the early church, persecution on the outside, false teaching on the inside, the Apostle, the the James, chooses to address issues that seem meaningless to us. Fashion and seating arrangements, he says, do not say to the rich man who is dressed in fine apparel, you sit here, and say to the poor man who is dressed in shabby clothing, you sit there. Now, not only does that seem to be a minor problem to rebuke in the triage of issues, it also seems as though James is working against what's just common sense. If you have a, a church plant and a wealthy person, an influential person, comes into that church plant, you are not going to send him over to the overflow room to watch the video feed. You're going to want to see to it that you evangelize that person, you show special attention to that person because of the power and influence that that person has that can then be harnessed and used for the sake of the gospel. But James says, no, don't you know that when you do that, you are contradicting God? Because don't you know that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and what? Heirs of the kingdom. James says, you think that you are being politically savvy and you are not politically savvy enough. You do not understand the long-term vision of the universe. That's why Paul, when he talks to the church at Corinth, says the issue of going to, to, to suit with one another in the law courts outside of the church, you are sending a sign to the outside world that you who are going to judge angels, you who are going to rule over the universe are not competent even to get along with one another even to resolve your minor, meaningless disputes. That's a kingdom issue, a gospel issue that you're sending to the outside world. The community, the worshiping, sending community carries with it a distinctiveness that gives us everything that we have to say to the outside world. Paul and Silas are singing One of the most important things that the church needs in applying the gospel to political engagement is not better strategy, is not better polling, is not better candidate recruitment. It's better hymnody. They are singing in a prison cell And they are singing through consciences that are formed as the people of God's consciences are always formed by the admonishing of one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Several years ago, I had a friend who had experienced a miscarriage. And my wife and I were talking to her and checking on her. And she said, I'm not going to go to my church tomorrow. I'm going to go down the street to a liberal Episcopal church. And I said to her, why? She said, oh, it's just for this Sunday. It's just for this Sunday. She said, I just couldn't handle the hilarity of it all at our church. And what she meant by that was that there was a hymnody, there was a form of music in her church that only expressed exuberant joy and celebration. There was not the sort of hymnody that could express groaning, lament, the way that the Psalms do, as they, as they express every aspect of human emotion. Our hymns, our service to one another, our life together as a body, our submission to the Scriptures together. These things shape and form us even in ways that we can't see and we can't articulate because they shape and they form our intuitions as a Christian people together. They show us and shape for us what matters and who matters. And then we're able to be the people who speak to the outside world from a gospel frame of reference. Now, there are some people who would say, when you're thinking about issues that are happening in your community or happening in your neighborhood or happening in your, in your nation, one should not refer to uh, issues of, of Scripture, citations of Scripture, because after all, uh, people don't uh, accept the authority of Scripture. And yet, when we come into the public arena and we speak from consciences that are shaped by scripture, we are not coercively calling other people to be shaped by those scriptures. We're simply being honest about what it is that is shaping and forming us. We can agree to work with people who come with different motivations. People who have different concerns, but we're meeting together as people who are shaped and formed through the community, through the mission, by the word of God. And what that means is, as we are engaging people in the public arena, we remember why we have been sent, which is for the purpose of reconciliation, we do not simply speak condemnation we speak the justice of God and the mercy of God together. In the same way that digital technology has turned pornography into a kind of fake love and in the same way in in an innocuous way, in a less morally problematic way, video games have enabled people to experience a fake kind of warfare. Social media often turns politics and religion into video games. The people on the other side of the screen and the issues on the other side of the screen are simply issues. They're simply ideas to be attacked and it can give people the sort of catharsis that feels as though they are doing something in the world when in reality all we're doing is venting our spleen. We're not, when we do that, speaking persuasively. We are instead simply getting the, the buzz and the feeling of what it means to do something from behind our keyboards. Paul and Silas are on mission. They're standing here and unwilling to defend themselves and to to look after their own interests because they understand the issue of the gospel as it relates personally to this man. Many times, we Christians are quick to claim persecution when what we are facing is instead merely personal offense. Several years ago, I was on a plane and I was flipping through an airline magazine and there was an ad for a grill. And the grill said, who says it's better to give than to receive? And I said, Jesus. And then I flipped a a few more pages over and there was an advertisement for whiskey And it was around, uh, it was around Christmas time and it said silent nights are overrated. And my immediate response was to say, how dare you take the incarnation of Christ and the words of Christ and use them in such a way to sell products in a magazine on an airplane? That was not righteous indignation. That was a sense of personal identification with Christ in such a way that I was personally offended by what was stated in these pages, even though the people who constructed them may well not have known who said it is better to give than to receive, may have just assumed that Silent Night was a Bing Crosby song talking about, uh, talking about Christmas evenings. But that tendency is present in all of us, and the illusion that we have had of being a Christian majority in this country has not been good for us. It has not been good for our understanding of what it means to be the distinctive people of God. It is not persecution when the woman at the checkout counter at Walmart says happy holidays instead of merry Christmas. And we do not expect lost, unregenerate people to pray to God without a mediator when we believe that the only way we can come into the presence of God is through the mediation of a crucified and resurrected Christ. Sometimes the offense that we have is really rooted in a Christless form of religion that actually would be willing to take behavior modification rather than the new birth. When a mosque is built in a community... And many times the inevitable controversy comes when people are asking the county or asking the city to zone the mosque out of existence. This is evidence of a people who have lost confidence in the gospel. You cannot, with city ordinances, turn Muslims into Christians. You can only with city ordinances say to Muslims, we do not want you here unless you pretend to be Christians. A gospel people do not do that. We are not driven by offense, we are driven by the gospel, which is why Paul and Silas here are speaking to this man in his moment of distress, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. They are so defined by the gospel that they are driven along by it and it is where they start and it is where they finish just as Jesus has commanded them. If we in the body of Christ do not make sure that we are defined by the gospel and sound doctrine, if we are willing to tolerate lunatics and heretics on the inside, as long as they agree with us on politics, then we have shown what our real God is. We are defined by the gospel that propels us forward, which means that we are often willing to give up our rights. But notice the paradox here. The gospel also propels us to stand up for our rights. Apostle Paul, Is not willing to leave. He voluntarily stays, says, don't, don't commit suicide. Don't harm yourself. We're not going anywhere. We're right here. You can, you can, you can be accountable for us. And yet when the magistrates send word, leave and go out of town, Paul does something that seems to be a contradiction of that. He says, I'm not going anywhere. You've arrested and beaten Roman citizens against the law. You come and get us. There seems to be a sort of defiance here in the same way that Paul, later on in the book of Acts, will appeal to his Roman citizenship and go all the way up the chain of authority in in Caesar's government. Why does Paul do that? it is because he does not want to see the church at Philippi and the mission coming out of Philippi harmed. Paul knows this is not simply about his rights. It is not about his privileges. It is about others who will be implicated in this and he will not leave behind a legacy of others who will be harmed and persecuted. Sometimes, younger evangelicals will react to some of the hyper-politicized activity that they have seen in older evangelicals and will respond with an attitude of, as, as one person I heard put it, rather than fight for our place at the table, thinking of issues of religious liberty, let's simply give up the table. That sounds spiritual and that sounds pious until you realize it's not your table. This is not simply a matter of you. Romans 13 says that the governing authorities have a responsibility to God and will be held accountable to God for the use of the sword. In a democratic system of government, the final authority is the people. What is happening in the voting booth, what is happening in the deliberation of a society is the delegating of a sword. Use the sword in this way. Citizenship is an office in this country that all of us are invested in. And so if we refuse to use the sword that we have been given in a way that is just and in keeping with the common good, we are held accountable for our apathy. We are held accountable for working toward injustice. We are held accountable for the mistreatment of the vulnerable or of the poor. We cannot simply give up the table when we are then going to be implicating future generations in the squandering of an inheritance that we have been given. But what many pastors and church leaders would say is, well, but how do we know then how to balance these these questions of political engagement and justice issues with evangelism and with missions? And I would say to you, we already know how to do this, and we do it all the time. The Scripture does not make a sharp distinction between personal morality and social morality, the way that we act together as a society. The mistreatment of the poor and sexual immorality are mentioned right alongside one another, not only in the prophets, but also later on in the the words of Jesus and in James and elsewhere. We know what it means to speak in areas of personal morality without then turning into a people who are defined by moralism. If you have an artist in your congregation... You are not going to preach on what that musician should sing. You are not going to claim an authority to come in and write songs for this musician. But if that musician, who's a member of your church, writes a song called something along the lines of, I'm so glad that Jesus is dead so that I can enjoy cocaine and prostitutes. Now you have an issue This is a clear-cut deviation from the Word of God, and you deal with that through the discipline of the church. You deal with that through the teaching of the conscience of that person. If you have an archaeologist in your congregation, you do not have to be an expert on archaeology in order to stand up and inform the conscience of an archaeologist. If the archaeologist suggests that there never was a place called Jerusalem... Now you have an issue of discipleship, of biblical authority. And even before that, though, you are teaching and preaching through principles in Scripture that are shaping and forming the consciences there. You do not need to be an expert in hedge fund management in order to shape the conscience of a hedge fund manager to act with integrity and not to defraud people. And as you're doing this, you will speak to some issues with prophetic authority, with an authority that is rooted in Scripture. You shall not kill. You shall not enslave. There are gonna be other issues that you're going to speak with from principles of Scripture, but you're not going to all come down on the same place as to how those principles can be applied. And then there are going to be other issues that you're going to leave to the consciences of the people in your congregation in the same way that we do when it comes to personal morals. There are some issues in the congregation that someone comes to you and says, my conscience uh, doesn't allow me to eat meat. What does the Apostle Paul say? Don't force that person to eat meat. Just see to it that the people who eat only vegetables and the people who eat meat don't bind one another's consciences. You will have some people in your congregations who have their kids in public schools and some people who have their kids in Christian schools and some people who have their kids in in home schools and you do not come in and say, here is the schooling option that we have chosen for our church. That doesn't mean that you have become morally relativistic you you may have someone in your church who comes forward and says, who should I marry? And your answer is, I don't know. But if someone else comes to you and says, I'm thinking about leaving my wife for my secretary, what do you think? Do you like her? The, the response is going to be, you cannot do this. This is contrary to the word of God. The same thing applies as we're speaking to issues that we often deem as political, which are often issues of justice in in the temporal arena. But we keep our priority where it belongs with the kingdom and with the gospel. Politics is temporal, important but temporal. There is no need to claim politicians as spiritual mascots or leaders. As a matter of fact, the moment that we decide to start looking to politicians as spiritual mascots and leaders, the immediate result of that is not more spiritual politicians It is politicians who have handlers able to equip them as to how to quote hymns and to manipulate spiritual people. We instead need to make a distinction between those who are on the inside, First Corinthians 5, those who are named by the name of brother and those who are on the outside. And those who are on the outside are those with whom we can often make alliances, sometimes issue by issue. The evangelical Christian and the radical feminist who are working together on the issue of pornography because both of them believe that pornography degrades and harms women and men. Doesn't mean that either is adopting the mentality or the worldview of the other. But on this issue, they're able to work together. On others, we're able to work together on many issues. But even that is a temporary alliance, and it is not an altogether endorsement of everything that that person or that movement or that ideology is about. We keep in mind the mission and we keep in mind the kingdom so that we do not surrender either to a kind of utopianism that says that we can re-engineer the world around us through legislation or to a kind of siege mentality, victim status that leads us to a meanness that lashes out at the world around us as though the world were our enemies rather than our mission field. Paul immediately leaves and he goes here to Lydia's house. He is there, the text says, with the brothers. He is building up the body. And notice, this is a group of people who didn't matter to Rome. They were people who did not have power and influence by Roman imperial standards. And yet in that little body was the mission that the Apostle Paul is called to, and that is the mission that you and I have been called to as well. Not in a withdrawal from the world, but in a preparing to be sent out into the world. Writer Walker Percy put it this way, by remaining faithful to its original commission, by serving its people with love, especially the poor, the lonely, and the dispossessed, and by not surrendering its doctrinal steadfastness, sometimes even the very contradiction of culture by which it serves as a sign, surely the church serves culture best. We engage politically, we engage socially, but we don't forget who we are. Frederick Buechner years ago talked about seeing a sign on an overpass that said, Jesus saves. And he talked about how he found that language kind of embarrassing as a sophisticated person. And he wrote, you know, Christ saves probably wouldn't bother me as much because Christ carries with it something that seems a little less personal. And Buechner said, Jesus saves seems cringingly, painfully personal. Somebody named Jesus saving somebody named whatever your name happens to be. And yet it is that painful, personal closeness that the gospel drives us toward. Paul here has this sort of boldness both not to fear death and to stay in the prison and to defy the government. Because he has encountered the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth who introduces himself on the road to Damascus by saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. You and I are pilgrims again. We're exiles in America right now, not because we have lost America. Not because we have come out of some mythical Christian America that never existed. We are strangers and exiles, the scripture tells us, in every culture and in every place because the gospel and the mission gets us out of step with the present in order to conform us to the future. And the future tells us what matters, and the future tells us who matters. When the culture says to us that unborn children don't matter, that they're not viable, that they're not useful, when the culture tells us that elderly people with Alzheimer's don't matter, they're not useful... When the culture tells us that children with Down syndrome and autism don't matter and they're useless, we have a word of God that tells us that the culture does not define dignity because the culture is not Lord that the sovereign God of the universe has identified himself with the vulnerable in the person of Jesus Christ, and when he is calling together his kingdom, he is not building it on the rock foundation of geniuses and influencers, but on the rock foundation of apostles and prophets who have a message and who have a word. That means that we remember where we came from and we remember where we're going and so we can render to caesar what we ought and we can pledge allegiance where we can but even as we engage politically and socially we keep a prophetic distance that knows how to say thus saith the lord we remember how to call Jesus, Jesus. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. Subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date on future episodes. If you'd like more information about Christians and political engagement, visit us online at ERLC.com.